1: Hey, this is Mark Treichel with another episode of with Flying Colors. I'm flying solo in one way today in that I am not interviewing any guests live. However, I'm trying something new here today and it relates to the NCUA board meeting. So NCUA had at 10 a.m. today, July 21st, their public board meeting, and they had three items on the agenda, a board briefing on the budget. A final rule for Part 700, 701, 708A, 708B, 750, and 790, Asset and Supervision Threshold for Determining the Appropriate Supervisory Office, what I've coined the Too Big to Fail Rules, and three, a proposed rule Part 748, Cyber Incident Notification Requirements. In today's episode, I'm going to speak mostly to the Too Big to Fail Threshold, And what I'm going to try here is some of you may be aware of this, but NCUA publishes their board meetings on YouTube, and they've been doing that for a while. It's a great public service, and they're super quick at getting them out there. So if you'd like to listen to the whole meeting, it's there. I'll put it in the show notes. But what I'm going to also do, trying this for the first time, let me know how you like it, is I'm going to take snippets of statements that were made at NCUA by perhaps a board member or perhaps an NCUA staff member, and then provide a little bit of commentary and context from my perspective in regards to that. So that's what's coming on today's episode. Before I jump into that, I wanted to say that NCUA made a couple of announcements on the front end. And one of those were that uh, Todd Harper, Chairman Harper, announced that the public board meeting in September unless something changes radically in the pandemic arena, that the public board meeting in September will be face-to-face. So if you're one of those folks who likes to go to an NCUA board meeting, it's great to see that they're going to be back live and in person. Another indication that we're the agencies moving forward into a less pandemic mode of operations, and that's fantastic. Another thing that came up relative to September is a board member did ask when the public budget should be going live to credit unions. And they indicated the goal to do that is in September. There were discussions by the chief financial officer, Eugene Sheed, that NCUA was already in the process of working on that budget. And what happens now is... They have to get it to the NCUA board. The NCUA board needs to get briefed. I know that process last year took longer than normal, which resulted in the public budget documents going out late. The public required board briefing be done late and the board budget being approved in December as opposed to November, which is more often than not the norm. So it's clear they're looking at trying to, to tighten that up and get things done a little bit quicker. There were also some discussions about the possibility of doing it in more of a roundtable format as opposed to a hearing format. So we'll see if that's something that they can figure out how to do under the confines of the rule, yet having it in an appropriately controlled government process. So that's all all positive news on the front end relative to the budget. I don't have much to say on the budget, the, the mid-year budget that they talked about, but there'll be more coming on that. There were a couple statements I might uh, flesh out in a separate episode, but I'm not gonna touch on that here. The big item I wanted to talk about was the too big to fail regulation that was finalized. And I am going to go live to a snippet here from the NCUA board meeting. And then I will have comments Follow. So the first sound bite here is going to be staff answering the question as to Are there any substantive changes to the final rule from the proposed rule and what the new threshold will be for too big to fail? Or, said another way, which credit unions report to the Office of National Exams and Supervisions or ones? Here's staff's comments. Morning, Chairman Harper,
0: Vice Chairman Hoffman and board memberhood. I'm here to recommend approval of a final rule that will effectively change the board policy defining when a large consumer credit union transfers to the supervision of the Office of National Examinations and Supervision, or ONEs. in brief, I'm proposing a new threshold be set at $15 billion in assets. The proposal was issued for comment, and we received five responses. After considering these comments, which were largely favorable, staff recommends no substantive changes be made to the proposal. The impetus for change in threshold is to balance the resource demands of the one supervision program.
1: So next up, staff describes what does not change. They've mentioned that the asset threshold in this final rule, which, by the way, does get approved 3-0, the asset threshold changes from $10 billion to $15 billion. And here staff talks about what does not change.
0: I will also highlight what will not change under the proposal. Any credit union currently supervised by ONES will remain with ONES. March 31 will remain the measurement date to determine applicability of the threshold, and the following January will be the effective date for transition into ONES. We believe retaining these dates best provides for ease of planning any potential transitions, both for credit unions and the agency. The capital planning and stress testing requirements will remain with the tiering system also maintaining the current thresholds. ONES is working with the regions to transition responsibility for capital plan reviews for tier one credit unions. All credit unions $10 billion or more will submit investment share and loan data to NCUA as is current practice. This requirement enables NCUA to implement and oversee capital planning and stress testing rule while also enhancing its supervisory efforts. ONES will remain the primary point of contact for data collection and will continue its current practice to onboard new credit unions to this requirement prior to their transition date. ONES will share report analysis with the Regions and their counterparts in the SSAs to support supervision responsibilities. Credit units are reminded once post information pertinent to large credit unions on the agency website under regulatory and compliance resources. This includes links to the regulations, guidance, capital planning summary reviews, and the share and loan data template. We encourage credit unions to reference this information to inform them of supervisory and regulatory expectations. Staff proposes a rule be effective January 1, 2023.
1: Okay, so what didn't change? Credit unions over $10 billion in asset size are going to still do capital planning. They're gonna still do stress testing. This will come up later particularly from Vice Chairman Hauptman. Also, what doesn't change is credit unions will provide data to ONES. ONES will still continue to be the place that $10 billion to $15 billion credit unions submits their investments, their share and loan data, which is the information as staff pointed out here that NCUA indicates its needs to do their analysis internally in their QA shop on capital planning and stress testing. And staff also speaks to the fact that they're going to start coordinating this within the regions, because while ones will be gathering this data, the supervision responsibility for 10 to $15 billion credit unions will still stay in the regions. And what is done with that data relative to capital planning and stress testing will be done in the regions. And, you know, the devil's in the details. That's where this gets a little bit more complicated because this this ability to do this is all housed in ones. They spoke to the fact that they would have had to add many, many field personnel if they didn't change this threshold because at least eight credit unions would come over and they're not staffed for that. So the challenge is going to be, if they're not staffed for that, how are they staffed to train the regions on how to handle the capital planning and stress testing? And one of the issues you always have at NCUA when you do something in more than one shop, how do you get that to be consistent? And that's something that NCUA, I'm sure, plans on addressing. They spoke to how they're looking at this process. They spoke to how NCUA's Enterprise Risk Management Council has been looking at this this transition to these large credit unions to the regions, and also a large credit union program, which I've talked about here previously that Todd Harper had made comments relative to having a large credit union program. Those comments came back, and there was another board member that also highlighted the fact that they believe that NCUA is ready for a large credit union program. All right, so next I've got a little bit of what Chairman Todd Harper has to say about this regulation change and why it makes sense?
2: This rule, as I look at it, is a natural evolution of the NCUA's examination program as the number of large complex consumer credit unions continues to grow. Additionally, this final rule continues to provide the appropriate oversight for those systemically critical credit unions, which pose a greater risk to the share insurance fund given their size and their complexity. By adjusting the asset threshold for determining which covered credit unions fall under one supervision, the NCUA can leverage the strengths of its regional structure to ensure the agency can effectively and efficiently monitor potential risks associated with these institutions within existing resource allocations and current organizational structures. With the rapid balance sheet growth across the credit union system since the start of the pandemic, especially for our largest of credit unions, Recalibrating the threshold was always a question of when, not if. In fact, federally insured credit unions with just under $10 billion in total assets experienced balance sheet growth of about 14% on average during the first year of the COVID-19 pandemic and more than 34% in one case. This asset growth represented a marked increase from the average increase of just 9% for this same group of credit unions in 2019. Without today's action, the number of covered credit unions supervised by ONES would nearly double in 2023. Such growth would have required a substantial reallocation of personnel within the agency and thereby incurred an undue and avoidable cost burden. So with the adoption of this rule, we are minimizing budget expenditures and reducing organizational disruptions. That is good for the agency, good for staff. Good for large credit unions, good for credit union members, and good for the taxpayers who back the share insurance fund. This change has other benefits, such as creating new development opportunities for examiners, providing a smoother transition for consumer credit unions that will eventually transfer to one's supervision, and enhancing knowledge sharing and expertise between ones and regional staff. That collaboration extends to training regional staff on their new supervisory responsibilities related to capital planning and stress testing.
1: Okay, so a lot to unpack there. Todd said a lot in, in in very precise words there. So the organizational disruption that this eliminates, I agree with wholeheartedly by keeping credit unions within the regions, the credit unions at NCUA have the same assignments of credit unions. And I think that is generally good all around. Um, the concept of the matter of if not when this would be recalibrated, uh, that that I agree with uh, 100% as, as well. Um, with the caveat that yes, the number was recalibrated, but they chained what credit unions over 10 billion have to do, regardless of whether they're at ones or within the region, they chained those requirements to anybody who hits that $10 billion threshold. So, Is this threshold really changing? The only thing that's changing is that it's going to be in ones instead of the region. The the fact of the matter is credit unions between 10 and 15 billion are going to have to do capital planning and they're going to have to do stress testing. Yes, they were going to have to do that under the rule regardless, but it's really not a recalibration in my mind of the threshold if those regs stay with those credit unions between 10 and $15 billion, because we're saying the the insurance fund or NCUA is saying the insurance fund has doubled since then. So too big to fail is different. So we can move that threshold up. All they did was move the threshold up of where credit unions report. Later on, board member Houtman will talk about the fact that this is not regulatory relief and he's right. There's no relief here between the 10 and $15 billion threshold. Todd made some really good points on the budget. I would wanna caveat the fact that he said that there would have to be a a shift of personnel, reallocation was Todd's words, of staff. And what that means is, if they didn't change the threshold, there would be positions announced within the Office of National Exams and Supervisions. And those positions, where would they be filled? Unless they came from the outside, they would come from within the regions. So the best staff in the regions would transfer over to the staff in ones, however, since those credit unions moved, there's always that question, if those credit unions move and the staff move, is there really a budget cost if if the regions can shrink a little bit because of the fact that they don't have those large credit unions anymore? now. There is always a net cost because if they go over to the one's office, they have higher grades that cost more. So that's where the statement would speak to the fact that there is an increased budget cost in that regard. So, yes, capital planning and stress testing are here to stay if you're over $10 billion. And board member Hood asked some questions in that regard. So, again, Todd said a lot there, and I wanted to unpack a little bit of what it means from where I've been and where I sit. Okay, so... Next up, Todd Harper makes a, Chairman Harper makes a comment about four levels of NCUA exam programs. And he makes a comment relative to the fact that he believes that NCUA should have a large credit union program. I spoke about that last time he brought it up. And I did a podcast specifically about that, stating that the large credit union program has been something that's come up over the last 30 years for NCUA. It actually led to the building, the partially led to the building of the ones division. And now they're looking at a large credit union program within the regions. And Todd speaks to that a little bit here and indicates that it was recommended by staff, which does not surprise me.
2: As we refine our assessments of risks to the share insurance fund, mindful of these long-term trends, we should also consider the development of a regional large credit union program for larger credit unions To further stabilize one's workload demands and better address the unique needs of this important segment of the industry and this idea was suggested by staff last year if implemented the ncoa would essentially as i understand it have four exam processes first we would have a streamlined system for well-run small credit unions then we would have a risk-focused exam program for small credit unions experience difficulties as well as for all all credit unions that are slightly bigger in size above that threshold. We would also then create, so that's the second one. Then we would, for a third one, have a specialized regional program for even larger credit unions, those nearing or crossing the $10 billion threshold until they get up to $15 billion. And finally, we would have one supervision for the largest credit unions above $15 million in assets. Could you give us or add some additional ideas about how a regional large credit union program might work, understanding that these are your thoughts and your thoughts alone, and that we would need to bring the regional directors in to weigh in on this. And what is the timeline, do you know, for further refining this idea that staff made for future board action?
1: Okay, before staff jumps in here, I wanted to jump in. And so Todd laid out the four different levels. The The new level that he referenced was three, the specialized large credit union program, to me, the key words there were this program would be for credit unions crossing or nearing the $10 billion mark. So define nearing, and then you'll know when credit unions need to start worrying about or thinking about being in that large credit union program and what that might mean. Okay, so here's staff responding to Todd's question.
0: Sure, thank you for the question, Mr. Chairman, and I do appreciate you stating that this would be a uh, cross-functional team that would have to prepare the ideas of a a regional large credit union program. Certainly, would be seeking RD&E&I comments. I think where we would generally seek is standardizing expectations and exam processes for these larger Credit unions to create some consistency, how we look at risk and view ratings assessments across the regions. I think this may include honing in on risk management governance and testing capital resiliency. But I also recognize that the standards no, need not be as robust as once. So I look forward to the collaboration. To declare, we have not started on this endeavor. We look forward to board guidance in this area, but we could certainly begin as soon as that guidance is provided.
1: So need not be as robust as ones. So these are credit unions. Again, this is just me thinking out loud, but here's the thing, need not to be as robust as ones, but they're gonna have to do capital planning and stress testing. The ability of the regions to assess those capital plans and stress testing, one staff are going to have to train them. So I think in the end, that it probably will be nearly as robust as one. There's more discussions later about the number of hours that one spends in credit unions, and maybe that's where staff is coming from here by saying it won't be as robust. If hours equals robustness, I would say that is probably an accurate statement. Okay, here's more from Chairman Todd Harper and staff's response that I will comment on after.
2: My next question concerns risk management. In finalizing the rule, the board has reconsidered the level of risk to the share insurance fund posed by a credit union with between $10 billion and $15 billion in assets. Would you explain in more detail how the risk profile of a credit union with $15 billion or more in assets today compares to one with $10 billion or more of assets in 2013 when ONES first began operations?
0: Sure. The essence of ONES is the board's desire to increase oversight for those credit unions that pose a systemic risk to the share insurance fund, as I think prior remarks. At the time uh, of ONES inception, the share insurance fund's balance was about $11 billion and today it stands closer to 21 billion. Thereby, this has informed why we made the recommendation that we could move the threshold for one supervision from 10 billion to 15 because of the near doubling in size of the share insurance fund to protect against losses.
1: Okay, so a lot said right there. So they formed ones because of systemic risk. I was there at that point in time. When we, when NCUA did that, I agree with that. At the time, staff indicated the insurance fund was about 11 billion and they established too big to fail or needing to be assigned to ones as 10 billion. The insurance fund has doubled, more than doubled since then, or about doubled to 21 billion. So they felt comfortable on a systemic risk level to raise the threshold to 15 billion. But here's the thing. They didn't change the rule, so they are still requiring more heavy lifting for anybody over 10 billion, okay? So what they're saying is systemic risk, you're only systemically risky, if the definition of systemically risky is, that's when we assign you to ONES, the Office of National Exam and Supervision, there's, you can say that, the words they just stated make sense. So under those auspices, they're saying, you get transferred to ones, you have more hours spent on you, you have more seasoned staff working on the credit unions. Okay, But from a regulatory relief perspective, they did not change what the credit unions over 10 billion have to do. And to in in my mind, and again, this is just one man's opinion. If you're looking at the systemic risk, those credit unions between 10 and 15 billion do not have the same risk as they did when the insurance fund was only 11 billion dollars. Therefore, they didn't adjust to the systemic risk in my mind as much as they could have considered. You know, maybe that's something they'll do down the road. Next, so here we have Vice Chairman Kyle Hauptman, his thoughts and comments and on the topic of the too-big-to-fail threshold being changed from $10 billion to $15 billion.
3: Mitchell, earlier this board meeting, we discussed the budget, and this item is good news for that budget. Without this threshold change, the ONES team, those who examine the larger creditors, have projected the need for up to 14 new staff because of the number of credit unions crossing the $10 threshold and therefore moving to one supervision. Adjusting this threshold keeps supervision for credit unions crossing the $10 billion threshold with their designated regional NCUA office until they hit $15 billion assets. However, credit unions that move into the $10 billion category over that must still comply with capital, requiring, capital planning requirements that come with that threshold. The only thing we are changing is who is responsible for supervision this was not intended as regulatory relief although i understand the desire to ask for relief for regulatory warden at every opportunity without this change it is safe to say new staff and ones will be needed in the immediate future i want to emphasize this is a money saving decision by answer i want to mention that i understand why some people initially thought today's change was about something different they heard the words NCUA changing thresholds from 10 billion to 15 billion and initially got excited in the belief that today's action had something to do with regulatory relief. And while my view is well-known that some regulation benefits the regulators more than the regulated, today's vote was never intended to be anything more than a money-saving internal change to NCUA's operations. This change is a stopgap, however, as credit unions grow in assets, more supervision will eventually move to ones. Today we're at an appropriate point to thoughtfully evaluate our supervision strategy. I'd like to ask my fellow board members to commit resources for a review of asset thresholds and what they mean next year—not just adjusting the thresholds themselves, but other tools as well. For example, one elegant way that agencies give regulatory relief is via the regulated entities earning, for example, a less frequent exam cycle or other positive things through stellar exam results and high capital levels. This sort of regulatory relief aligns incentives for all parties. N2A can focus on the credit unions that need help. The credit unions that earned regulatory relief really want to keep that status via continued excellent performance. The successful supervision of credit unions as unique member-owned cooperatives always brings its own challenges. So a review of asset thresholds would help us be more deliberate in our strategy. That said, I commend staff for coming up with today's change that saves money and ensures more supervision occurs at the regional level. That concludes my remarks. I just have the one uh, question. Can you just review the changes? If a credit union sitting today at say 9.9 billion, and may soon go over that threshold, what changes happen in their life now if we pass this? Yes, sir. So
0: under that scenario, so let's say they're 9.9 billion dollars today. So we're sitting in July. We would look to the next measurement date, which would be March 31. Of 2023 to determine if that credit union crossed $10 billion. If so, then effective January 1, 2024, they would transition to be a $10 billion credit union, subject to capital planning. But they would remain under regional supervision up until the time they crossed $15 billion on a March 31 effective date. So, in essence, their supervision. Would continue to remain with the regions for foreseeable years, but capital planning would be introduced in this scenario as early as January 1, 2024.
1: Uh, okay, so there we have Vice Chairman Kyle Houtman's comments. I appreciate his enthusiasm and, and what he brings to the board. And all three board members, you know, really come at their jobs in an appropriate light, but from their own perspective. And that, that's, that's why we have boards of directors, as opposed to CFPB, who only has one person leading it. And so there, there's an advantage here at NCUA. I won't, I won't get into that dialogue here, but it's great to have a board. Great to see this dialogue. And my podcast here is about one man's opinion, my opinion. All right. So same as it ever was. Reminds me of a talking head song of the same name. And that's really kind of what Kyle said here is this, or excuse me, board, board member Hauptman said here, this was never intended to be regulatory relief. He said, I I mentioned that he said that there, you hear, hear him saying that of his own voice, the only thing here was a saving of money. So here's the thing. If, Here's my take on whether or not this saves money. You could say it does, and you could say it doesn't. It really depends how you do it. But if I was saying I was going to go add a second car to the car that I have, and I went through, and I looked and said I was going to buy a car that was $50,000, and then I decided not to buy the car, I saved $50,000, but I didn't ever really have to spend that $50,000. There's, in saying that they're there saving money, they're implying that they have to spend the money. And as the executive director at NCUA for nearly eight years, I was one of the most important things the executive director does beyond carry out the will of the board is shepherd the budget between staff and the board and all that. So, it, the budget at NCOA literally was my Super Bowl. So I have a lot of thoughts on, on how things are budgeted and should be budgeted. Board Member Hauptmann talked about the fact there would be 14 staff. Yes, there could be 14 staff if they didn't change the threshold. Those, However, those staff could come from the region. When ones was set up, they cannibalized the old corporate program and took the full-time equivalent staff from there. So the budget impact is not a full 14 staff unless you decide it has to be the full 14 staff. You need to have that dialogue. If those credit unions, if eight large credit unions move from the regions to ones, those hours go away in the regions. Simply put, there's just not a dollar for dollar cost increase relative to that. I appreciate him saying this was not intended as reg relief, but then it really comes down to the only real change is that you don't go to ONES, you still have to do the capital planning and you still have to do all the other things in the regulation. It's simply a matter of who you report to. And as we're going to get to with board member Hood, ONES spend, spends more hours on credit unions than the regions do, okay? so. What's going to happen between the 10 and $15 billion? Are they going to, let's say, Wands does twice as many or three times as many hours as a region uses between a 10 and $15 billion credit union. Is that what's going to happen? Are the regions going to triple those hours? Because if they do, they're going to need more staff just like Scott did. And oh, by the way, then you don't save the money. All right. Or are they going to only keep the hours at the same level or only add 10% so that they can do this capital planning by the way, which they're going to get trained on by the one staff. So there's a very circular discussion about cost savings here. And I'm very curious to see how it plays out over time because they're talking about having a large credit union program that talking about that large credit union program being when you go over the cusp of 10 billion or close to it, does close to it mean 9 billion? Does it mean 8 billion? Does it mean 7 billion? Whatever that means, they're gonna spend the money in another way. And then again, to the comment, it was never intended as reg relief. I get that. Was it intended as a recalibration of what systemically important is, of what too big to fail is? And if it was, in my mind, the regulation requirements should have changed along with the threshold. And, and again, Houtman's right. They were crystal clear in the proposal that the regulation was going to still require, be required other than who you reported to. Therefore, there was no regulatory relief. My point would be is they could give regulatory relief between the $10 billion and $15 billion, but they've chosen not to. And that's a, a valid decision. They're requiring those credit unions of that size to do more robust capital planning, provide more robust details to NCUA, but then you haven't calibrated. So, you know, so which one is it? That's, again, that's, that's my take on this. And I am going to have a quick discussion here with some sound bites from board member Hood momentarily.
4: You know, my views on this topic have evolved since this rule first came before the board in February as a
5: proposed rule. My views have evolved in part because of comment letters we received, in addition to other external engagement that I've had with the industry and other individuals where this issue has become the subject of conversation. So to the public listening today, your comments matter, and they do indeed inform my views. And I would say, my fellow board members, when we hear from you, they do Influence our decision making processes. So, again, thank you for that. We're here today because large credit unions experienced significant share growth due to the pandemic, outpacing the Office of National Exam Supervision's ability to supervise all natural person credit unions over $10 billion in assets with the current authorized staffing levels. As was mentioned, 14 new additions would be required were it not for today's rulemaking. In reality, the advantage of raising the threshold for credit unions transferring into ONES is the ability of the regions to provide insight and supervision to credit unions and to use their incredible depth of talent there in those regions to supervise these larger credit unions. It also gives the regions a vital voice and view into the data program ONES has recently created. The regions, as I've mentioned, have tremendous talent and they do bring to the table a lot of resources. And I do think raising the threshold will help accomplish this. Do we have your commitment that ONES will bring the regions into the discussion and decision-making as to what data to collect and how to present it?
0: Yes, sir. I do believe this will be a collaborative effort to make this data and information of value for both ONES and the large credit unions under the regional supervision. As I did mention As far as executing the data collection that will remain with ones. the agency has invested experts as far as the ingest and cleansing of this data, but it certainly will be a collaborative process on making those reports informational and valuable
1: across regions and ones. So here we have Chairman Hood talking about how his view has changed since they issued the proposal and he talks about the ability of the regions to supervise these credit unions from 10 to 15 billion and he also mentioned my biggest takeaway from that snippet is it gives the regions a voice and a view on the data programs that one has developed so right now the additional analysis that goes into stress testing and capital planning has come from come from within the office of ones by one of the advantages i would say to continuing stress testing and capital planning between 10 and $15 billion and having that in the regions is there's a lot of bright, there's a lot of bright minds in ones. There's a lot of bright minds in each region. And going back to the wisdom of crowds philosophy, that can make this stress testing and capital planning better. And the regions may be able to influence either adding some data elements and, or taking away some data elements to make that process better. All right, we're going to move on to some more comments here from board member Hood.
5: Great. As a safety and soundness regulator, a regional structure does not have a single point of failure in the supervisory process. I see you all would agree. We've seen the risk of having a single point of failure at the NCUA during the recent corporate crisis well over a decade ago, and we've hopefully learned and gleaned a lot of insight from that. I would add that the ONE supervisory program is overseen by ENI for quality control purposes, but I'm not sure this goes far enough to remove the single point of failure concern from the ONE's program. So at this point, I think it's appropriate to walk down memory lane. The ONE's office was created in 2012 following the creation of the Federal Stability Oversight Council and the Dodd-Frank provisions. So let me ask a question for the record. Has FSOC ever designated a credit union as too big to fail? No, sir. Great. Thank you. And so while we did not have any systemically important financial institutions at the NCAA that will result in posing a risk to the U.S. financial stability, the NCAA board did in 2012 decide that we needed to follow suit and create a one's office as they believe the nation's largest credit unions were systemically important to the Share Insurance Fund. I want to be clear. There are indeed some advantages to having a one's office. For one, there's a consistent treatment and supervision regime over all of our large credit unions. The office allowed for the agency to adopt supervisory standards specific to larger credit unions. Since inception, we've adopted capital planning and stress test regulations to instill supervisory expectations that credit unions plan for future risk and assess capital beyond the current PCA standards. We've also created a continuous monitoring process, and we have prioritized the concept of governance as critically important. For context, the OCC and the FDIC have large bank programs apart from supervision of smaller banks. But the way one's office is structured does have a few disadvantages, including that the program lies specifically in one office. Perhaps better stated, there is a single... Your risk, notwithstanding the ENI's role in the process as previously mentioned. So at this point, I do have a few more questions. Another issue is the significant increase in supervision hours one gets compared to the other regions. So, Scott, how can the board have more accountability, monitoring, and reporting of hours
0: during this process? I'll say specifically to resources necessary to conduct the supervision. We do provide this information to ENI and they formally comment. So again, that is part of the quality assurance process built into their oversight. As you are also aware, on a quarterly basis, ENI submits summary reports of their QA and quality control processes to the board so that the board has visibility on their oversight of one supervision.
1: Okay, so here, other than the reference to the Dodd Frank and, and PCA and risk based net worth, which I, which I think uh, Board Member Hood's going to get back, back to, uh, he specifically asked about the supervision hours that, that ONES gets on its credit union and how that's reviewed, and that's reviewed by the Office of Examination of Insurance. And some of you may recall that NCUA. While I was there and still talks about bottoms-up budgeting, that when a credit union budget is put together, or or excuse me, a staffing budget is put together at NCUA, that they determine the hours for each individual credit unions. There used to be a matrix where they would average average it based on side and CAMEL code, but shifted to a bottoms-up on the hours that you need based on the conditions of the credit union, et cetera, et cetera. ONES does something similar to that. But as I said earlier, there's a substantial amount more of hours that are spent in ONES credit unions. And I, I don't have those numbers at my fingertips. I get a sense that Board Member Hood is saying that's something he might want to have a little bit more information on. And who knows, quite possibly that's something that could come out in the NCUA budget hearing briefing that's coming out soon. But the key question then becomes what hours are going to be spent on those credit unions between $10 billion and $15 billion. Are they going to be hours equivalent closer to the ones hours or hours equip- more equivalent to the regional hours? And if it's more equivalent to the regional hours, there may be some more budget savings as opposed to having gone over to ones. And if the hours creep up to ones, that budget savings that they're referring to evaporates quickly, if not in- totality in some instances. Again, the budget's so a lot of levers on that budget to push and pull on. All right. So here's, a, here's some more comments from board member Hood.
5: Great. Thank you, Scott. And I do think prudent leadership in this regard is quite important. Is there more risk at all for that $10 billion credit union relative to a smaller credit union?
0: I'd say the way I look at this question is the relative systemic risk should a credit union fail. Uh, not implying that a larger or smaller credit union has inherently more risk of a potential loss, but should a larger credit union, 10 billion in your question, fail, yes, it would have a, a deeper impact to the
3: health of the share insurance fund.
1: So that makes sense. A larger credit union fails. If you come up with a standard loss for every credit union that fails, the bigger the more zeros, the bigger the, bigger the loss is gonna be. I think ultimately the point though, for me, as a former insider, now on the outside looking in, I would say that when WANS was started, a $10 billion credit union could more substantially impact the insurance fund. And the impact of a $10 billion credit union today on the insurance fund is about half the impact as it was when WANS was created, which is why it makes sense to have these credit unions stay in the region but it ignores that issue of what regulatory requirements should be on these credit unions between 10 and 15 billion. The board has said by voting, they need to have the same regulations in place as they did 10 years ago, because that's a good thing. And so be it, that's that's what's gonna have to happen. But perhaps at some point when they reevaluate this, they'll take some of those requirements off those credit unions. Really, the other side of that is that those rules are gonna trickle down because what happens is when you get a good idea at NCUA, and you start having this cross-fertilization in the regions, those regions, those examiners are going to learn things about capital planning. And that's going to trickle into the 9 billion and the 8 billion and the 7 billion. And that's a good thing, but that's also a regulatory burden thing. So those skill sets being brought up so that they know more about capital planning, they can talk to the credit unions between five in 10 billion then they're gonna to talk to the 4 billion and they're gonna to talk to the 3 billion. So it's gonna trickle down. And if that's the intent of the board and staff, that's great. But it really, there really isn't a recalibration of the regulation here that has said, there is no regulatory relief on this. All right, more from Hood.
5: So would you agree then that while more, more daughters may be at risk at a large credit, union, it's not significantly higher. And what I'm trying to get at is since the creation of the fund, Smaller credit unions are at higher risk of causing the NCUS losses. Has that been the case?
0: I can't specifically answer that question. I think we can follow up if I consult with E&I after this meeting. That's my general understanding. The number of losses may be concentrated in smaller institutions. But for certain, there are larger institutions that have cost the share insurance fund more and deeper losses. Okay. But then when the
5: ones office was created, a $10 billion insurance payout, would, I recognize would nearly have depleted the fund, would that be correct? And how does that relate to today?
0: So as I understand the question, a $10 million loss, yes, back in 2012 or 2013 would nearly deplete the entire fund because the balance of the fund at that time was around $11 billion. Under my prior remarks, today's fund stands at $21 billion. So yes, there's more loss absorption capacity, although we also must be mindful of the capitalization deposit and the structure of the fund. Thereby, if we would erode the retained earnings of the share insurance fund, it could trigger premiums to be paid by the credit unions, even if there was a balance within the share insurance fund.
1: So at the end there, a staff member made a interesting comment that if a large credit union was to fail and you needed to recapitalize, there could be premiums on a credit union. So a large credit union, the too-big-to-fail concept, you could have other credit unions get caught in the wake of a large credit union because they might not be able to afford that recapitalization and those premiums. Here's more from board member Hood.
5: And at those larger credit unions, let's say over $500 million, are they all performing better today and financially compared to when we were looking
4: at this issue a while ago and also, especially looking at smaller, smaller credit unions. Uh, To the first part of the question,
0: I can't answer the question if they are operating better today than back in 2012, if that's what I understand your question. I'm just trying to get a feel for performance then and now. I will generally say that over the, recent years, the largest credit unions have proven very resilient, especially through the pandemic, to retain healthy capital ratios, to build programs that service their members through times of need. As we know, the pandemic challenged many consumers, needing some relief on lending and providing that service credit unions do. And I think the large credit unions did a strong job in and meeting those demands without sacrificing the financial health of their institutions. I can't compare and contrast the one's credit union performance to other credit unions. Again, I would suggest I can get back to you with a more formal answer if I consult with E&I.
5: Great, thank you, Scott. But again, would you say then that safety and soundness is quite frankly safety and soundness regardless of asset size?
0: I think it's prudent for NCUA to develop supervisory and regulatory expectations based on the size, risk, and complexity of the institution. That
5: concludes my answer. Great. Well, thank you all for indulging me, Scott. Also, it's worth pointing out, though, that we now have a risk-based capital regime. I know that our chairman and others have said that RBC is supposed to identify Complex credit unions, that is large credit unions with over $500 million in assets with an unacceptable level of risk, as determined by the ratio. Since we now have a monitoring tool in place with RBC, despite its flaws, as someone mentioned, you can easily make the case we should be using these lower ratios to focus, focus our exam teams and thus should restructure our examinations. We, have, we can use lower RBC ratios to focus on risk and not size. So while RBC and net worth are lagging indicators, how does RBC impact the needs for the ONES office?
0: I would say uh, the risk-based capital level of a ONES institution is but one of several measures we look at when establishing the financial health of the institution. Would you like me to further elaborate? If you don't mind, please. Well, certainly. To my prior answer, we look at the complexity of operations, the relative level of capital, and importantly, the exercise of reviewing a credit union's capital plan goes a long way into really understanding the nature of risks and threats specific to that institution. We look at the credit union's book of business. We, as I said, uh, are alluded to earlier with our data collection, we can see the underlying credit quality of its lending program, we can see its concentrations, and then we look through the capital plan through the eyes of the credit union, how it views its risk, how it explores adverse events on the health of its institution, and should it feel uncomfortable or out of its own risk tolerances, the proposed responses by those credit unions to ensure that they remain healthy should those potential adverse conditions arise. And of course, Our job is also to have a back office challenge function, which the board has authorized through the development of the one's quantitative analysis division, where we have the ability to conduct our own risk analysis and have conversations with the credit unions when there's disparate views.
1: That concludes my answer, sir.
5: Great, thank you for that very detailed response.
1: So, uh What we have here is a discussion of uh, risk-based capital net worth and and board member Hood asked staff how that worked into assessing the large credit unions. And of course, uh, implied in that, I think, is the fact that prompt corrective action requires a... All right, so we just uh, had... Board Member Hood asked staff about prompt prompt corrective action requirements, risk-based net worth requirements. Not sure if you can hear the wind in the background, but got a storm coming through here. Uh, And and it's picking up steam. So uh, staff spoke to the fact that that PCA and risk-based net worth are part of what they look at. But on top of that, they look at complexity, they look at capital planning, they look at the risk and threats to the capital, and particularly the credit union's capital planning uh, that is required helps NCUA better understand if they have enough capital. Uh, That's another way of saying that. And then staff referred to the, the QA office that ONES now has, and that was born of, Okay, so um, Hood asked about prompt corrective action and risk-based net worth. Staff said that's a starting point. Hood said that he knows those are backward looking. And in that regard, um, staff talked about ones requiring a look at uh, the complexity of the credit union, the credit union's capital plan, which reveals their depth of their understanding of how much capital they need and looking at the risk and threats to capital and obviously their overall book of business. Staff also referred to establishment of the ONE's quantitative analysis office, which was born uh, under the uh, leadership of Rick Metzger, who wanted NCUA to stop relying on outside staff uh, to do stress testing, test checks of the credit union's balance sheet and have them done internally, uh, which is where NCUA was going uh, when I left a couple of years ago. And and they put that in place, they built that out a little bit more, and that's what Scott is referring to there. All right, here, so more from uh, board member Hood.
5: Scott, I must say though, with the continued consolidation in our industry and with credit unions becoming more and more complex, today's rule does not quite go far enough for the risk we have as an agency if the one's office grows too quickly. Additionally, I wish the rule provided additional regulatory relief to credit unions in terms of capital planning. I learned from one credit union with these new requirements, it's gonna cost them nearly a million dollars a year. Yes, I would have preferred that this rule provide further relief to our capital planning regime as the state of the share of the insurance fund has changed significantly since the last financial crisis. While I have serious reservations and believe the rule does not go far enough with the continued growth and consolidation of the industry, I plan to support this rule ultimately because it does protect the NCRA regional structure without undermining our ability to regulate the largest credit unions in the ONES portfolio. I believe it is worth considering having a large regional program to ensure a smooth transition to ONES for the largest and most systemically important credit unions and to enhance the quality of supervision for the largest credit unions. I think it's safe to say that the $15 billion threshold is too low for what is considered a systemically important credit union I recognize that we can have time to revisit this at a later time. I just have one further question, and that is for the record, and it goes with what the vice chairman was asking earlier about that $9.99 billion institution and what happens with them. Scott, for the record, could you mention that it's my understanding for those institutions between $10 and $15 billion today that in order for them to come into the one's structure, it would require an NCUA
4: board vote. Is that correct?
0: Correct, sir. I, under the language within the rule, it's under the section uh, titled Reservation of Authority. Uh, the board reserves the right to place a credit union into a higher tier category. Uh, that decision rests with the board. There is no delegations below the board level. That concludes my answer, sir. Right.
1: Thank you okay all right so a uh, lot packed into a, a short statement there um by uh, former chairman hood so he said it is worth considering a a, a large credit union program so that's now two board members who specifically said uh having a large credit union program is something that they would either consider or think they should have there'll be more on that coming from uh from NCUA obviously, and uh, Chairman Harper, I believe makes a comment uh, in regards to that as well. Uh, Hood also states that $15 billion is too low. So he's gonna be looking potentially to tweaking that. Will that be something that uh, can be done before his term is up, which I believe is next August? Possibly not, probably not, but he's getting in the record that he thinks the $15 billion is too low. And then lastly, he. Uh, I, I'm glad this question was asked. Uh, Board Member Hood asked what happens on a credit union between 10 billion and 15 billion that NCUA decides needs to be in the division of ones? And by needs to be, um, who would make that decision? And so for, by way of clarification, NCUA's rule, allows for uh, the board to do that. And Hood here is asking if there are delegations of authority, because while it says the board, the board can choose to delegate that. And the question, the ultimate question here is, is that delegated to staff? And staff indicates, no, that's not. So if there was something happening at a credit union that was 14 billion or 12 billion, and there was a belief within NCUA staff that that needed to be shifted over to uh, ONES, uh, the staff would have to explain that to the NCUA board. The NCUA board would have to have an appetite to take a vote on it. And then if the board did vote on it, that credit union could be moved to the Office of National Exam and Supervision. All right, here's more.
5: Thank you. And again, I do thank ONES for the hard work that they all put forth each and every day. And I also applaud our regions. I think they really are those on the ground foot soldiers when it comes to really looking at the needs of their respective regions. So I recognize that this is going to require them to expand their work, but I think they're fully up to the challenge. And I really am excited about the work that they will continue to do every day to instill a safe and sound credit union system. I have no further comments, Mr. Chairman. Thank you so much for Member.
1: Okay. And again, here, Board Member Hood speaks to the skill sets of the regions. I would agree with what he says there. There's talented people in ones, there's talented peoples in the regions, and the regions are going to learn more about stress testing and capital planning under this final rule being approved. Here's Chairman Harper.
2: Mr. Hood, you raise a number of important points. and The NCUA's Enterprise Risk Management Council is currently evaluating NCUA's approach to large credit union supervision. In the past, The council has overseen reviews of enterprise risks or certain areas of enterprise risks and large credit union supervision is currently under evaluation. This evaluation gets to the points that you were making. It's intended to assess if there are gaps in how the NCUA addresses risks and that the overall supervision of large credit unions addresses from an enterprise level. I do look forward to that analysis. I do look forward to working with you and Vice Chairman Huffman to make sure that we get this right, because I don't think any of us want to be in a place where we have a $6 billion hole that we need to plug and go to Congress to ask for additional money. Having been in the congressional seat when this was first uh, went through the corporate crisis, it's 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 not a place I want uh, our agency, and I don't think it's a place any of us want to be in. With that, is there a motion, Vice Chairman Huffman? All
1: right. Is there a motion? Yes, there, was, there ended up being a motion. It was approved three to zero. So in closing there, uh, Chairman Harper made reference to the Enterprise Risk Management Council, which is not something that there's not a lot in the public forum on NCUA's Enterprise Risk Management Council. It may be mentioned in an annual report or in a budget briefing of some sort. That is a group of the top people at NCUA, top executives. It's chaired by the Deputy Executive Director. It was established when I was at NCUA as the executive director. I formalized the charter based on recommendations and discussions at the board level, at the staff level, and that's one of the first public references to that council existing. It's great that NCUA has that. By the way, I spoke to that a little bit in a previous podcast with David Seibert, Enterprise Risk Management. It's NCUA does not require, FYI, does not require Enterprise Risk Management. For credit unions, but it does have its own council. And if you want more on that, check out my other podcast. I'll put a copy of that in the show notes. All right. So NCUA went on to have a rule on cybersecurity. I may do a separate podcast on that. I wanted to focus on the one that was of most interest. I did a poll question on which of the three board items you wanted to hear about most, and it was this one. And if you like this new approach of me taking NCUA's actual words in from their video and then opining on, on my thoughts as the former executive director and a, as, and a current consulting helping credit unions. Shoot me a note. I, I enjoy doing it this way, and it's a way to get their personalities and their words directly into a podcast and get it out timely so that you can get my take on what they voted on. And on this one, I would agree that there could be some more regulatory relief. They've opted not to do it, but Put, has put a marker out there indicating that that's something he'd like to see. And where does, where does the Enterprise Risk Management Council land on this large credit union program? Is it going to be addressed in the budget that's coming up? It's going to have to be to some level. Now, will they have it in place or will it, it be a first step? It'll most likely be a first step in the 2023 budget. But I'm looking forward to the September budget documents And I'm sure that I'll have some podcasts on that and podcasts on the budget as we go forward. Lastly, this was a good board meeting, a lot of good dialogue. And I hope you enjoyed this new format from my side. And I really appreciate your time. And I hope that you'll listen again soon. This is Mark Treichel signing off with Flying Colors.